Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be um, this, this morning. And, and Paul writes to a very strong church. This was a very missional church. In fact, it's really one of the most supportive missional churches that we see um, throughout, really, the, the New Testament. Um, really, Paul and Timothy founded this church about 10 years earlier. Um, and, 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 and the way that it was founded, you remember, was kind of uh, through the jail system. And uh, had an opportunity to connect there with the Philippian jailer and with Lydia. And, and uh, then the church really kind of took off. So Paul's writing this 10 years later back to that church. And he has some specific specific things um, to tell them. Um, in this past week, um, I was talking with a friend of mine named Josh, and Josh is at a church in, in Texas, and uh, he's a guy that I've worked with for many years. I, was, I had the opportunity in Texas to lead him to the Lord, and um, he interned with me several times throughout um, the last several years, graduated from Southern Seminary, and now he's um, there at First Baptist Tech, uh, in Ferris, Texas, and uh, he, the church is really going through a struggle. Their pastor just recently um, left, and Josh has been taking on the bulk of the teaching. He was their youth pastor, and this past week, they tried to bring on another youth pastor, and a bunch of people got mad, and they said, well, we're already paying a youth pastor. Why do we need to bring on another guy? Well, Josh is now doing counseling and teaching and leading and all these other things, and for some reason, the church just couldn't get it in their minds, in their heads, what was going on here? And so it kind of brought up some dissension and some people really got frustrated and the meeting just kind of turned sour. And so they weren't exactly sure what to um, do. But I just want to um, say in talking with him, I just thought, you know, there's a lot of churches that really struggle um, in leadership vacuums. They struggle just when decisions are made by leaders, whether those are elders or deacons or pastors or Sunday school teachers or whatever. And so this morning, kind of what I want us to just look at is what does it mean for us to renew our partnership in the church? Because I think that this particular passage that comes from a very strong church as Paul's writing to them, he's showing an example and some things that were significant and why this church had such a great impact to be able to support Paul when he was um, sharing the gospel in Macedonia and, 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 and uh, Thessalonica and other places as he went. And so um, a few years ago, I, I guess that's not true. It was a long time ago now that I think about it. it was, I worked at Colonial Country Club in the mid to late 90s while I was at seminary trying to put my way, put myself through, through seminary. I'm working at Colonial Country Club. Any golfers in here? So the Colonial, that's a pretty significant um, uh, tournament. And so Fuzzy Zoller was there and Tiger Woods was kind of rising up and and I got to see him play. But when I became uh, an employee at this place, Colonial Country Club, they handed me an employee handbook and in it, it had some really interesting things. Now that's like old school money and you pay a lot to be a member just for tennis membership for a year is like five grand. And then I think golf starts at 25 grand just to be a member of this place. And so they expect some things from the employees there. So we would get a break and we could go eat in the employee break room. And we couldn't, you know, hobnob with the members because we're, you know, peons or whatever. You know, we're just not good enough to be able to do that kind of thing. And there's one thing that just struck me in that book was if I'm seated, let's just say I'm you know, behind the cash register or seated anywhere on uh, the facility and a member comes to talk to me, it specifically said I had to stand up and, and rise and look them in the eyes and listen until they were finished talking and then I could sit down. That's how you know, significant the ex- expectation was of these 
um, members. And I just want to just kind of say that in many ways, in membership in the church, we've kind of treated it like a country club membership. And the two just aren't synonymous. And so this morning, what I just want us to see is what does real membership or partnership look like in the church? And so Philippians 1, I think Paul does a very good job of kind of outlining this. So let's jump in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give my thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about you because I have you in my heart. And you are partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you and with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Let's pray and dive in this morning. God, thank you for Paul in his life and his um, dramatic conversion and how you used this man who persecuted the church in many ways to write most of the New Testament and to establish churches all over a particular area, Lord, so that he was able to write to the church there from uh, in Romans and he was able to say um, that there's no place left to share the gospel. God, I, I have no idea what that would be like. God, I'm just asking that as we look at your text, at your scripture today, we would see the significance of being partners together for the sake of the good news of Jesus. And Lord, if there's anything that's hindering us personally from doing that, that you would point that out. We just ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so renewing our partnership in the gospel. The first thing that Paul writes about is the leadership in the church. Okay, and so he points out, and of course, you know, Paul and Timothy, um, he says here are bond servants. Yours might say servants, but that word servants is a word that means bond servants. That's someone who attaches themselves to somebody and gives up their will to that other person. So that's what it means when we become a believer and we're bond servants. We're attaching ourselves to Jesus and saying, not my will, but yours be done. I now, Jesus, want to have my heart beat with the things that your heart beats for. I want to speak the things that you speak. I want to do the things you do and go the places you go. And so that's what a bond servant is in this particular case. And so he writes, Paul, Timothy, in the greeting, says that they're these bond servants of Christ Jesus. So he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, how many of you here know that you're a saint? Okay, all right. How many of you guys feel like you're an ain't? 
right? It's like, okay, I'm not sure about that, but there are saints and there ain'ts, and sometimes we just feel like we ain't a saint. I mean, it's just kind of the way it goes. I mean, there's just times kind of like, well, I'm pretty sure I made a decision to follow Jesus. I'm pretty sure. In fact, I know the scripture tells me that he resides in my heart through faith, but sometimes I just don't feel like that. Well, you know, what's interesting is in the New Testament, that word saint literally means holy ones. And it's not because of anything that you've done. It's everything that he's done for you on your behalf. In fact, it means that those who have repented and trusted Jesus in faith, you've been saved and you've been declared holy. It's a standing, a right standing before God, this righteousness. And that's what it means when you're a saint. So if you've received the Lord Jesus, even if you feel like you ain't, the scripture says you are holy because you have been declared holy. So that's who he's writing to. He's writing to the saints, first of all, as these believers. And listen, here's the deal. You can be a member of this church and get your name on the roll or on Sunday school, and you can be an ain't. If you've not received what Jesus has done, John chapter 1 says, if you've not received him in faith because of what he's done, you're an ain't. But it's very easy to receive and believe, repenting, turning from our sins, to say, Jesus, I need your work on my behalf. And the scripture says that we become holy ones. We sang a little while ago, all the um, souls who've been set free. That's part of being a saint. Those who are in Christ Jesus is what Paul points out. But look at who else he writes to. He writes to the overseers. And there's a lot of, um, I think, uh, uh, contention. There's even some um, misunderstanding in terms of what overseers are um, these days. And, and so there's some people who have different thoughts on that. And I just, what I um, understand from this is that word's really only used five times in the New Testament, this particular one here for overseer. And it's a word, I don't normally do this, but this spoke to me, is the word episkopos, right? And so there are churches that have an Episcopal form of government where there'll be somebody kind of up here that's taking a look at the churches to say, well, you know, you're not doing that right. Or, hey, here's what you need to do. And, and as Baptists, as Congregationalists, we don't believe that. But the overseers, what we would say, in fact, the word Episcopos, think about the second part of that word, scopos, means scope or to see. And so... Um, I don't know where it is now. A little while ago, I thought there was a scope sitting on one of these um, music stands, and it was a shaker. And I just thought, man, is that just to find who's sleeping in the service? Or what do you guys use those things for? But no, a scope is something you look through, right? A, a, a microscope so that you can see, or, you know, hunters, if you look through a scope so that you can see something. And so the word episkopos simply means someone who's close to seeing. In other words, an overseer watches and looks to see what's going on in the church, what's going on in the lives of the saints. Not necessarily in this case in an authoritative way, but that's what it means. It's it's not a title, but it's a function of a pastor or an elder as an overseer. That's part of what they do. It's part of what pastors do, right? Um, Sometimes they shepherd the church. Sometimes they, uh, well, they're supposed to always have great character. First Timothy Titus shows us. And they're supposed to be guardians of souls. Can you imagine the responsibility of looking over and looking at somebody's soul to see where they are, growing in relation to who God wants them to be? That's a big responsibility. And Paul writes to these people. But the next group of people he writes to are the deacons. 
Okay? And so the deacons, that word, and this is interesting. I never knew this before till this week. I don't know how I didn't know this. But the word deacons literally means those who are kicking up dust. Isn't that interesting? And that's a great word picture, isn't it? Because that means that these guys, and I think even ladies, I'm not telling your church how to do it. I think that the Lord can show that there can be, but anyway. And deacons, I think ultimately, here's the deal. These people are supposed to be so busy serving, waiting tables, taking care of ministry needs, that there's just a cloud of dust behind them. And they're just doing stuff. And that's what the word literally means. Isn't that fantastic? That means that these are people who are supposed to be serving the body, helping the body, taking care of what's going on in the body. And so that's the other group that Paul is writing to, these deacons. Um, Anybody in here do fantasy football or fantasy sports? All right, so, um, you know, uh, football season will be coming up, and, you know, we've all watched the draft, and then we all get real serious, you know, in August. And we're, you know, grabbing the magazines and trying to, who we're going to draft, and we do the mock drafts, and, you know, who are we going to get on our team? And then, uh, uh, you know, sometimes there's some wagers. I know some people do that, but we want to figure out who, if our team can beat these other teams. And so you draft players from all these other um, NFL teams if you're obviously playing fantasy football. But you know what's interesting? About two years ago, there's a bunch of people that got really upset because their um, individuals that they had drafted on their fantasy team were not performing up to their expectations. And so they actually went out on Twitter and Facebook and started letting these NFL players know, I'm not happy with the way that you're performing. My team is losing. I'm going to lose the pool on this thing. You better get in gear. Can you imagine the audacity of somebody who's not even paying the millions of dollars for this person to be on the field, and yet they feel like they have this responsibility to let them know that they're not living up to their expectations? Guys, you know what I'm afraid of? Is we've got a lot of fantasy church players in our churches. I'm afraid that oftentimes we've got people who feel like they've drafted a pastor or a Sunday school leader or a deacon and they just aren't living up to their expectations and so they just want to call them out and let them know. So they're going to send them emails or they're going to murmur in the halls or they're going to do this or that and that is detrimental to the partnership of the gospel. And so what they're doing, if they're complaining about these leaders, they're not willing to kick up dust or to, or to guard its souls, but they want everybody else to know that they're not happy about the performance of the leaders in the church. Now, there are times that elders and leaders need to be held accountable, and that is completely biblical on the account of two witnesses who would then say, hey, look, there's an issue in this situation. But I think that, uh, unfortunately, he's writing to these Christians at Philippi, he's including these elders and pastors and deacons. He's saying, hey, listen, if you know Jesus, you are a saint. God, you have a common connection with these other believers. And God gives these leaders to, vote time, to devote time to watching over souls, caring for people, and serving the body. Do not take that lightly. We can't. We can't take that lightly. 
It's interesting how, I mean, there's just, you know, survey after survey that's out today that kind of puts pastors, you know, even like below used car salespeople. And so uh, if you're a used car salesperson, I'm not, you know, saying anything about that. I'm just simply saying in this case, in a long time ago, people couldn't even be trusted if they were wearing beards. And so, um, Stephen, man, we're, we're in bad shape here. You know, if, if you can't trust somebody that's wearing a, a beard, it's all about the character of who you are. But I'm just saying in this case, God has given some leaders to the church and we can't take that lightly they're god called leaders but you know what everybody's a partner in the gospel look at what paul writes in verse three turn with me there Um, he says i give my thanks to my god for every remembrance of you always praying for joy with all of you in my every prayer why because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now and so the second thing is this is showing us the task of the church. See, Paul thanks them for, the, for one thing and really one thing only, their partnership in the gospel. He went there to establish this church. God obviously led him there through the Macedonian call. He gets to this place, shares um, the gospel, and that word in the Greek literally for the word participation or, or, or partnership means participation. It's something we're involved in. And he says, hey, from the first day until now, and that means the first day that they came to know Christ and that church was established from then on, they've been partners in the gospel saying, no, this is on us. This is a part of what we're supposed to be. Isn't that significant that Paul came in, established the church, and then he went on somewhere else to start um, another church? So leaders had to be raised up from within. So he's writing 10 years later, and he's not the one who picked the leaders necessarily to be the leaders in that church. But now there's overseers and deacons that are here in this um, church. And so in verse 6, it says, hey, God has started this work in you. It's this inner desire that's carried out. If you've been saved and changed by the Lord, there's this inner desire that just springs up from the inside. And it comes to the outside in what you say and what you do. And it can't be stopped. God is going to continue to finish and bring to summation, consummation and complete what he started in us. And obviously that will be completely fulfilled when we see him face to face and we're um, with him in heaven. So in verse seven, Paul says, hey, listen, your partners with me in grace It's what God's done, not what you've done. And then there's kind of three things he tells them that they're their partners in. First of all, in the imprisonment. And so remember, he was in prison there in Philippi, and, and then uh, this miraculous thing happened. They get out of, out of prison, but he's letting them know, hey, listen, literally, I was in jail in Philippi. Then we know um, here in verse 13, he's probably talking about the Roman imprisonment. And so we know there were probably encouraging things that were sent to him. There were, there were maybe care packages. I don't know. I don't necessarily think that any of the Philippian you know, people sent a file and a cake you know, to Paul or anything there. They could trust and the Lord to take care of those things. But he just talks about this partnership as part of that. But look at the next thing, the defense of the gospel. That's fantastic. The word there is the word apologia, meaning this verbal defense of defending the faith. And so as churches, if we're partners in the gospel, there's going to be times we have to just flat open our mouths and say, no, that's not true. That's not what Jesus meant by that. It's not what um, the the church is about. And so sometimes we have to defend and, and correct people to say, that's not right. That's not true. But then the next thing is the confirmation of the gospel. And I love this one. This is a hard one, though. 
Because what he's saying here is that you validated and you physically showed a change in life brought by Jesus that people could see. That's how you confirmed the gospel through as a partaker of grace because you uh, are, are, are displaying what God does in a person when he changes them from the inside out. You're confirming the fact that the gospel is true and it still changes lives today. And so Paul was thanking them for being partners in the gospel. Part of that was being um, uh, those who confirmed the gospel. Now, I tried to do a partnership a few years ago. I owned a business as a courier company. And I had a friend or this acquaintance who owned a huge warehouse. And he had trucks and all kinds of things. And we thought, hey, maybe this is a good opportunity here. But I had something in the back of my mind and really even in my gut that said, this is not the guy you want to do business with. But we sat down at a table and talked through possibilities and, you know, hey, we could do this, we could do that. And we tried to do a little bit of work together. And um, then we both said, you know what, I don't think this is a good idea. And we parted ways. And thank God that's what happened because several months later on the news, um, the FBI was raiding his place. And all I could think of was, I don't look good in orange. And I'm just not sure that that would have been a very good partnership. Thank you, God, for stopping that from happening. And unfortunately, this individual's life um, even went spiraling out of control, lost his marriage, and lots of other stuff was, taking, was, was, was happening there. And I feel terrible about that. But listen, when you're partners in an endeavor together, you have to trust each other in the mission of the work. You have to know I've got your back. You got my back. We're going to defend this business. We're going to defend the mission and we're in this together. And so we're participating in this um, together. So turn with me very quickly to Luke chapter five. Um, and, and I just want to show you this is a significant use of the word um, partner that kind of gives me a really good picture of what this means. So in Luke chapter five. Um, let me see here. We'll just start in verse four, I think. So the, the crowds are pressing in to hear the word of, of God from Jesus. And in verse four, it says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down nets. So, I mean, if you're a fisherman, it's kind of like, you know, you're kind of like, it's done. I mean, it's noon. It's time to go home and, you know, um, grab the sandwich and the, and the lawn chair and throw it in the back of the truck and go. This is not, it's not working out. Verse six, though, when they did this, what Jesus said, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Listen, here's the significant part of that. That word partners is the same Greek word koinonia that Paul just used here. Your partnership, your fellowship, your participation in the gospel. He's saying, listen, we're in this together. And so they couldn't do this alone to bring in these fish and they're about to lose the mother load. And it's kind of like, hey, guys, look what's going on. Come on. You got to come help us. So they do. And look what happens. Verse eight. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus's knees and he said, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid. Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching men. 
or people. You'll be fishing for men. See what's significant about that? The task of the church is that we're in partnership together, in participation together. Our mission is to see people come to know the Lord as we're fishing for people. That's the mission, the task of the church. And we have to do that together because sometimes the task is going to get so difficult, we can't do it alone. We've got to have other people helping us to do that. And that's why it's important to renew the partnership of the church. You see, um, Paul said the Philippian church defended and confirmed the gospel. And if you um, have experienced God's uh, grace and salvation then you are to be a partner in the gospel. If you're a partaker of the grace that Jesus has bestowed, we're in this together. We're saints, even if you feel like it ain't. So my question is, how are we doing at that? How are we doing? If we're all supposed to be involved in partners of the gospel and this participation of defending the gospel, confirming the gospel and sharing, how are we doing at that? Last year in New Mexico uh, for Baptist, we had just under 3,000 baptisms. One church in our city had half of those. And we have many churches that had zero. And I understand it can be very difficult in certain communities to share Jesus with people. But can you even call yourself a church if you're not baptizing anybody? I just don't know scripturally if we can. Flat down comes down to who you are and what you value inside. Okay, let's look at verse 8. Look at this with me. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. He's writing to these people who he was able to connect with on this missionary journey and share Jesus with and saw Lydia and these others come to faith. And he longs for them. And these are the people that have supported him and he loves them. And so he's writing to these people. So the third thing is just the character of the church. He deeply cares for them. In fact, the word literally means from the bowels or compassion of Christ. Have you ever felt something so deeply that it just hurt? So he's writing from this compassion and love for them. Verse 9, it says, he prays for their love to abound. And that word means to exceed the normal. How? Through two things. Through knowledge. And that word knowledge is a word that means experiential knowledge. Coming to know that love. Coming to know Jesus through experiencing um, him. And then the other one is through discernment. This cuts through to make things clear. How is their love going to abound? Through experiencing Jesus and through discernment to know what is right and what is wrong. It's not a feel-good love, not a feel-good faith. It's informed by the gospel and the whole of Scripture in God's heart. And so that's where he says is that love needs to be a why. Why does that need to abound? Verse 10, so that they can approve what is excellent, which means to test and know the things that are genuinely godly. You can test and say, you know what? That shouldn't be in our church. It, 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 it's something we're able to look at and approve and, you know, say, hey, you know what? You shouldn't be talking about that leader in our church that way. You shouldn't be, you know, living out that way because the discernment and the knowledge that comes through that love shows us what is excellent and what is genuine. And then the next thing, to be pure and blameless, and that word literally means not stumbling. See, we've got to be able to, to pave a smooth road for people so they can see what it means to be a partner in the gospel. 
And unfortunately, there's times where as Christians, we just kind of live however willy-nilly. It's not informed by the gospel. It's not informed by what Jesus would want us to do. And then we just kind of say, well, you know, uh, there's, uh, you know, in Collisions chapter 10 or, you know, um, Hesitations 5. I'm pretty sure that's in the Bible somewhere. Really? I mean, it's got to be informed by um, Scripture and um, submitted to the will of of Jesus. And then in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's approval um, from God for what is right, right living. And look at what he says, and I love this in verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. Um, This past week, I was um, making... Uh, pancakes for my kiddos and sliced up some bananas to put in there. And, you know, um, as I was opening the banana, um, I just want to tell you, I didn't have a thought ever that I was going to open it and there was going to be raspberries inside. Man, I know sometimes, you know, I do. It's kind of like, is this really a banana? I'm just going to open it. And, you know, is, is that really what's going to be inside this thing? I mean, surely there's not any, you know, watermelon in there or anything else. No, I didn't. I, I just didn't have that. That think I didn't have that thought at all. Bananas are are really good. In fact, when they're really ripe, they're great for banana bread. Amen. And so we had some that were pretty ripe, had been in the freezer. My wife made some banana bread, and so we got that this week um, to eat. But sometimes in the bottom of the fruit bowl, there's one that's a little past being ripe, right? And and uh, in fact, it's pretty black, and and we call that rotten, right? I mean, that's just. Really not good for anything, and you don't really want to eat that thing. But you know what's interesting about fruit, especially, you know, bananas? You can kind of tell from the outside what's on the inside. So I know, you know, there's a little dark piece over here. There's, that part's probably a little bit more ripe on the inside. You know, some of us cut that part off. Some of us, no, we want to eat that part. You know, kind of, kind of depends. But bananas, it's interesting because fruit always has integrity because it's the way that God has created it. You open up a banana, you, again, you're not going to expect something else to be in there. And if you see on the outside the banana looks rotten, it probably is on the inside. Well, here's the thing that's interesting. The character of the church is so significant because with people, that's not always true. It's so easy to just kind of come to church do our thing and have rotten parts on the inside of us that are just infecting and attracting little, whatever those fruit flies are. Just, uh, it's just, it's nasty. It's just kind of messy. And it's easy for us on the outside to kind of think, look like we've got it, you know, put together. If we dress really well and we bring our Bible and we're worshiping and all those things. The reality is we don't often have the integrity that fruit has. And so in this passage, Paul is talking about the deep character of the church. He's, he's deeply caring for them and he's writing and he's saying, listen, I, I'm praying for you that your love would abound through knowledge and discernment so that you can test and know what's genuine and what's right and you can be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus. And church, let me just warn you, there is a lot of um, self-righteousness in our churches. It's very easy for us to just kind of be like, well, yeah, I'm doing pretty good comparing ourselves with other people. Or, you know, I'm not like that guy on the street or this. And that's just not the goal. Reality is um, the glory of Christ is what we're shooting for. And we all fall short of that. That's, that's, the, that's the real thing. 
But the character of the church matters. Who we are as the people of God matters. And the problem is, if we don't get that, it hinders what God wants to do through us, and it hinders what he wants to do through the mission of his church. So I want to finish here just with a few minutes with you, just with seven practices that I think can help us to renew our partnership. And you might just write these down. And the reality is, this is just a walk through the book of Philippians. Don't worry, we're not going to read it all. We're just going to look at, at, at seven quick, quick things. And the first one is this. The first is, you and I need to probe our heart to make sure that you know Jesus Christ. See there in chapter 1, he says, I'm writing to the saints. Those who have been declared holy because they've received the Holy One. Those who are partners in grace or partakers in grace. We have got to probe our hearts and say, Lord, do I really know you? The second thing um, is this. We need to publicly seek to live out the gospel. You see, verse 27 and 28 um, of this Uh, passage chapter one says as citizens of heaven live your life worthy of the gospel of christ then when i come and see you or i'm absent i will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit in one accord contending what together together for the faith of the gospel not being frightened any way about your opponents and so he's saying listen the way that we live is important and we've got to be in this together as partners in the gospel The next one, though, is that we've got to pour out ourselves um, for others. See, chapter 2, verse 3, says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important to uh, to yourselves. Then in verse 17, he talks about being an offering, um, being poured out for others. And so, man, there's just a lot of pride in the church. Oftentimes, we just kind of think of ourselves as better than others for one reason or another. Or sometimes we'll do things out of selfish ambition or conceit, whether that means, no, my class really needs that Sunday school classroom. Or, you know, are we really going to do that on Wednesday nights or whatever that is? And so the reality is um, uh, pouring ourselves out for others in humility is part of the partnership of the gospel. Next one, then, is proclaiming the good news. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life that I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for anything. And so um, Paul is helping us to understand and see that, listen, the way that we're proclaiming the truth, the good news, and showing that in a twisted generation is important. The next one is passing on our rights. Chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree, agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Did you hear that? These were women who knew the Lord and had labored in um, the gospel with Paul. And he's writing and saying, hey, listen, um, uh, you guys, you've got to agree in the Lord. We're going to have disagreements, but sometimes we've got to put those things aside and say, let's agree together in the Lord that this is right as we move forward. Passing on our rights is important. 
The last thing is this, praying together. Chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so praying together helps us to renew our partnership in the church and in the gospel. Um, See, when we commit in Jesus' power to do these things, our church is going to look different than every other organization in town. And there's a lot of organizations through policies and procedures and, you know, whatever, mission statements, values, all these things can come together and be on the same page and can accomplish great things. But I can promise you this. First uh, John talks about the fellowship that we have as believers. The reality is some of you in this room probably don't hang out every Friday night together. Number one, there'd be a lot of people at your house. But number two... Your fellowship is with Christ. You may not bike together, hang out together, listen to the same music together and all those things. And that's okay. But when we join together to be partners in the gospel, that transcends all of those other affinities and likes and habits and things that we have so that we can come together for the sake of Jesus so that people can hear the good news of what he's done for them. We have to put all those other things aside and we've got to practice some of these things that we just looked at to be able to show the world what it means to be participants in grace together. And so the invitation or just response time today for you and for me is this. Have you recently just probed your heart to say, Lord, am I in Christ? Do I know you as a savior? Can I believe that Paul wrote that to the saints and I'm one of those. And then the second thing is this. Is there, is there anything, anything in your life, in your mind, in your heart that's keeping you from really being that partner in the gospel? Maybe, you know, a broken relationship or a thought towards a leader in the church or just maybe even just kind of, man, can God really do that and change somebody's life? Because we got to believe that or we're not going to tell anybody about him. And so renewing the partnership in the church, I just would um, ask that you would consider those things. And so I'm going to pray. And um, the way we're going to respond today is this. You can just stay seated right where you are and just reflect through those six or seven things. You know, God... Is there anything in here that I need to, to take a look at today? And then if for some reason you, the number one, you've probed your heart and you say, I don't think that I know Jesus, then I'll be sitting here and Stephen will be sitting here. We'd love to just sit right here and just pray with you and then begin a conversation of what God could start in you to bring to completion. So let me pray. God.